Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. Here again some of the words from our text. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I do have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So far, our text. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of the season of Lent, and, and Lent is the time that we have set aside in the church for very special reflection, devotion, self-examination, and self-discipline. It's a time the church has to listen to Jesus and be chastened by his word, to let Christ discipline our hearts, and to guard our minds, and to change our minds. And this should ultimately lead to repentance and deeper faith in the gospel of Christ. And as we live in this season, it's important for the church to consider our own weaknesses, our own vices, our, our own kind of perennial, ongoing difficulties and sin. The devil's toolbox, it's very old, and he's not a very creative being. And while he's often very crafty, and his wickedness, the things that the devil will employ in order to destroy the church are the same old, same old. And so during this season of Lent, we're going to be looking at some of the old tactics that the evil one likes to use in reading the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. As we see Jesus personally call his churches back to him. Here we see Jesus speaking directly to real congregations with real struggles, living in real times and in real places. And as we hear what he has to say, we'll learn more deeply about what the Lord desires for his Christians. Because he corrects them, he chastises them, but he also praises them and comforts them. So we begin tonight with the letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city on the, the far western coast of Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, and it was a congregation started by St. Paul himself. He was one of the few places where he stayed for an extended period of time during his missionary journeys, nearly three years, and he put in the work of an evangelist, but also the work of a pastor as he made sure to teach and to raise up leaders and to guide the congregation. And as he was there, many of the great names of the New Testament were there with him. We have Prisca and Aquila, leaders of the church themselves, those who welcomed the congregation into their home as they gathered for worship. Later, St. Timothy would dwell as the pastor of Ephesus, following on and carrying on the work that Paul had begun there. And history tells us that even St. John the Apostle ended up being the bishop of Ephesus and leading the church there through many tumultuous and difficult times, one of which is where we have John now. During 
the writing of the book of Revelation, John is in exile on the island of Patmos, just off the coast of Asia Minor. And you can imagine John sitting on the shores, looking across the sea, longing to see his dear and beloved church and congregation. But now as John sits there, the Lord appears. The Lord gives him visions of of heaven and of things to come. But the Lord also gives him things to tell the churches that are just across the sea. He identifies himself as the one who holds seven stars in his hand and as the one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. And prior to this letter, he tells us what that means. It says, as for the mystery of the stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven lampstands you saw all around me, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches whom I walk amongst. And so Jesus begins... And he starts to address the congregation in Ephesus. And as he begins to talk to them, he also slips in a little bit of a promise and a comfort. He says, I hold your star in my hands. The star is the angel of the church. Angel means messenger in Greek. Many people over the years have interpreted the angel in this case to be symbolic of the pastors of the church, the ones who preach, the ones who teach. And so it's kind of like Jesus is telling them, hey, I hold your preachers in my hands. What a comfort for John, being the preacher to the church in Ephesus. They are mine. They belong to me. I possess them as my very own servants, and they are to do what I tell them. And that's true. Along with this, we see that Jesus says he walks amongst the seven lampstands that are symbolic of the congregations. This means that he walks in and among his church. He makes his dwelling place with his Christians. He is there with them as they endure hardship, as they endure suffering, as they endure sin, and he can see them. He knows what they are doing. He knows what they are not doing. And he can see their hearts. He knows what they are lacking. And he knows what they have in abundance. He can see their weaknesses. He can see their strengths. And he's there to help them. And the Ephesians did have their strengths. Jesus praises them. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. And now you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. See, the church of the Ephesians cared about doctrine. They insisted upon it. And this is in keeping with what Paul told them when he was going to see them for the last time. As Paul was uh, beginning to be under arrest, he knew he was heading to Jerusalem to be bound up and brought to Rome to be put on trial. And so, as he's on his journey... He stands on the beach in Asia Minor and he exhorts the Ephesian elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to your flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men who speak twisted things 
to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you and commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Imagine those words from St. Paul. Be on watch. Be on guard against the wolves. Be on guard against yourselves, as even from among you there's going to rise up men who twist the word of God and draw people away from Christ. The Ephesians took this exhortation seriously, and they kept watch. They measured everything that was preached with what they had learned from Paul and from the scriptures, and that is good. That's what every Christian actually has the duty to do. You have to listen to the preaching that you hear and measure it up with what you know from the scriptures. Because there are ravenous wolves that invaded Ephesus, and they are no different than the ones that we face today. There exist and persist wicked false teaching within the Christian church. There, there are those who would speak things that God has not spoken. There are those who would take it upon themselves to correct God and edit his word to make it more acceptable to our modern ears. There are those who would twist scripture to make any sin permissible, to relativize the cross of Jesus, to muddy the waters of the truth. And we as Christians must notice this and be on alert and guard our hearts and our thinking as we deal with this fallen world. There are anti-gospels and anti-Christ who dwell in every facet of the world today. Some want to replace the gospel with pleasure, others with social agendas, others with money, others with power, others with desire or prestige, and whatever else the world wants to value and wants you to value. And their false teaching has one result. Sheep are drawn away from their shepherd, and souls are destroyed by false teaching. And so the Ephesians did a good job. Jesus praises them. They contended for the truth. They stand firm and fight against all the false doctrines that pour into Ephesus. They constantly live in vigilance. They constantly live in study of the scriptures. They measure every teacher and every teaching, testing what is taught by holding up to the gospel of truth. They hate falsehood. And Jesus praises them for that. He says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These are false teachers. They despise what the Lord despises. They hate what the Lord hates, and that is good. There are things that are despised by God that we as Christians should find reprehensible. It's good to despise the teaching and the works of liars. It's good to call it evil. It's good because God says so. And so despise false teaching. Flee from it. Understand it. Know it. And with the Ephesians, we have a great example of a congregation that, that did that. They did everything right. They ensured that their teaching, their practice, their doctrine, everything they did was right. But one thing. In the midst of it all, they failed to guard their hearts. See, the problem was that the Ephesians were so preoccupied with what they despised, they forgot about the thing that they loved. 
They become so defocused, focused on defending the truth that they had forgotten why the truth is valuable. And to this Jesus says, but I have this thing against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Why were they supposed to be preoccupied with defending sound doctrine? You know, sometimes I think we view... Our, our confession of faith, our, our contention for the truth as a means to its own ends, where the point is to preserve sound doctrine for the sake of us being right and everyone else being wrong. And so we refute the false teachers, we own the libs, we get angry about all the wrong that's going on in the world around us, we, we call it out, we, we point at all those, those crazy people on the left and say, how dare you break our society? We, we point at all these weird teachings that we come across in the world and it becomes its own self-congratulatory exercise of winning. Preserving truthful doctrine, contending for the truth, is not about winning and when it becomes to be this way the work of the church it really becomes a a bitter exercise and it's loveless i have to win i have to be right i have to prove all those other people wrong and if i don't i'm not being the church and that misses the point paul teaches timothy keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist in this for by doing so You will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, the fight and contention for what is true, for pure doctrine, it's not not for the sake of being right while everyone else is wrong. No, the fight for pure doctrine is about ensuring that we hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is to be our first love as Christians. It is hearing that Jesus had died to forgive sinners. And this is what should be the source of fire and zeal and joy for us as Christians. The fight for pre-doctrine is it's done out of love for the gospel and the joy that it brings. And the fire and the zeal that we have as Christians. The joy that we have in the assembly. The, the, the pleasure that we receive from being in worship. It's born out of love. And receiving the gifts of grace that we have in Christ together is the communion of saints. Sometimes that loss of zeal, that fading and waning of love for the gospel, infects churches today. Many churches, you, you look at their founding, and it's, it's about this optimistic and joyful love of Christ who forgives sinners. It's those who experience that that blessing beginning, and they're zealous. They're zealous for the truth, they're zealous for outreach, and their hearts are so filled with joy in the gospel that they're willing to devote themselves to the work of the church. They refute falsehood, yes they do, but they do it out of a grave love and concern for their neighbor and for the praise and honor of Christ who has saved them. Yet sometimes we also see after that that maybe a little generational drift begins to take place. And the zeal that once existed in a place begins to to wane. And the important things maybe become more of a, a matter of procedure. 
And then compromises are made on the essential functions of the church, and all of a sudden, the church begins to falter. We can see this in the Missouri Synod at times. We see that sometimes our pastors aren't willing to argue and to debate about doctrine and practice because the stuff is best sent up the food chain to the synodical bureaucrats and the district presidents. Let's let them do the heavy lifting. Let's just pretend that we're all friends down here. Divisions and disagreements, they're never really dealt with as they get stalled in red tape and deliberations that never actually end up being answered. We see these types of things happen in congregations too as good participation in the church simply means that you show up and have a pulse, right? We, we come to service but don't take note of each other. All becomes about the individual and choices start to be made according to personal preference rather than the needs of the body as a whole and then people disappear. Stop coming to church for months or even years and Sometimes people even fail to notice. As our loves and our pleasures take up more of our attention, the love of the gospel and the delight of sharing that gospel with our neighbors and hearing and receiving that gospel with the body begins to slip away. And what ends up happening to church bodies and congregations and different groups is they're usually going to have a remnant. A strong group that holds out, that remains bold and committed. But even over time, these may fade from the church as people grow old and the young move on. And this can be frightening. As we think about the maybe trajectory of the, the church in America right now and even some of our small congregations. In this day and age, there are so many churches that are shrinking and closing. And as we see these things happen and we see many people fall away over the years begins to be heartbreaking. And we have to ask, well, how are we to respond? How are we to respond as, as we see that the church drifts away from the church truth or as people lose their zeal for the faith in receiving the gospel, as people stop being bold in their witness of the truth? Well, Jesus tells the church in Ephesus what they must do. He says, repent. Turn away from the worldly desires to be right about everything. Turn away from the shiftless appeals to organizational rules and procedures. Turn away from self-absorbed desires that govern our lives and the church. Turn away from spiritual compromises and undisciplined lifestyles. Repent. Turn to Christ. Return to your first love. Or St. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or as it says in the Psalms, trust in the will of God. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. Or even as Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Or... Maybe in simpler words, receive the gospel with joy. Acknowledge the weaknesses that we have in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own churches, in this place here and now and today. And allow the words that Jesus has for the ancient church at Ephesus and all the other of the seven churches 
to hold up a mirror to your own heart and examine your life and look at its fruit. Look where your time and your energy are focused. Perhaps these are very godly things. Perhaps there may be diversions, distractions. Maybe there are things that are drawing your heart away from your first love. Maybe they are leading you away from the joy and the hope and the promises of God. And if they are, flee from them. Set them aside. Put them away. And rend your hearts before the Lord and acknowledge these things as sin. Psalm 51 tells us, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Remember what drew us to the church in the first place, what made us into Christians in the first place, that Christ is quick to forgive sinners. He is quick to show mercy to his dear, beloved, and weak children. As we read today, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And as we read in the other Psalms, the Lord is good to all in his mercy and is over all that he has made. He makes that truth known to you in Christ. We all have ashes on our forehead. And, and if you think about it, it's probably kind of a silly gesture, putting ashes and dirt on our forehead. But it's so truthful. Because these ashes stand as an outward sign of an inward reality that we are sinners. Our hearts, which are blackened by sin, will constantly be drifting away from that first love. It'll drift away from his gospel. It'll drift away from the dependence and the need of the forgiveness that he provides for us. And our hearts will constantly be seeking more meaning, more joy, more pleasure in other places. They'll seek to redefine, restructure, and remake the church of God in an image that's more suitable to what we want. And this is why the Lord teaches us to pray. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And to the one who rejoices in this, Jesus offers a promise. To the one who rejoices in the forgiveness of sins. To the one who, once again, finds the root and joy of their heart in knowing that Jesus is crucified for me. Jesus offers this promise. As the Ephesians were called out for their wayward hearts, Jesus promised them. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We don't conquer on our own. We must receive victory from the hands of the one who has already conquered for us. We conquer only by fleeing and running to Jesus. By rejecting that there's any righteousness in our own will, our own desires, our own wants, our own preferences. But we rest in the uh, righteousness given by Christ alone. And in him, we cannot fail. In his love, 
we're made to love fully and purely. And his cross and through his love, we can be certain that the devil has not gained the upper hand in the kingdom of Christ. No, rather that Christ renews and he strengthens us in his gospel every day as we live in our baptism, as we expose our hearts and our lives to his word, and as we gather to eat his holy supper, we are continually reinvigorated and regenerated in that first love. You grow in the gospel, and you grow in love for the gospel by receiving the gospel over and over again. You grow in your first love by hearing Jesus speak into your hearts and proclaim into your ears, I forgive you. I have died for you. I have claimed you and made you my own. And so as we hear the words of Jesus today, and we are given the same promise, that Jesus can and does change hearts and that Jesus does dwell in us, and cause us and build us to delight in his forgiveness. And we know that in that there is no barrier. That he does not cut us off from the fruit of the tree of life. But he welcomes us into the paradise of God. There's nothing that presents us from seeing our weakness in our hearts. And the futility of the desires that we often have in this life. There's nothing that prevents us from also then handing these over to the Lord who takes our sins away and brings us into eternal life. Remember your first love. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, stir up our hearts and refresh us in the love that you have provided us at the beginning. Cause us to be zealous for the truth, but also cause that zeal to flow from the love of Christ and his forgiveness. When we are weak, help us, dear Lord. When we are ignorant of the truth, open our eyes through your word. When we are loveless, give us clean hearts. Remake us and recast us into the image of the one who will bring us to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.